Let's uh, pray in preparation for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, be with us uh, today. Uh, be with me as I as I preach the word, as I uh, unpack the treasures that that your your uh, scriptures contain. Lord, I pray that um, I would be faithful to your intent, that I would be faithful to the gospel, and that as folks hear from you today, Lord, that that it wouldn't be me, but your your spirit that fills them. And I pray that you would prepare the hearts of the folks who are here, make them fertile ground, Lord, take the the weeds and the thorns away from their lives, that they would. They would, uh, they would just be ready to hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. I, uh, if anybody, I don't know, I've probably eaten with almost everybody in this room. Um, um, folks who, who've eaten with me uh, know that there's a, a, uh, a main ingredient to almost everything I eat. Um, and it's hot sauce. Yes, or smoke, actually. It's also on the list. I... Uh, I I was making eggs the other day. I read an article about how to make eggs better, and I, I was experimenting with different ways to, to make scrambled eggs, or omelets, actually. And I, I realized that it was a waste of time because eggs are a hot sauce delivery system, and that's, that's it. Um, and my, my temptation as I sort of dive into the text we're going to do today was to, was to um, make this about like trying to translate the analogy. Um, I was going to talk about hot sauce, you know, and... And I, I realize that that doesn't really work because it's sort of an add-on. Um, the most basic ingredient you're going to add to everything you eat in the world is salt. Really, my wife is the only one that knew that. Um, salt is 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 it, right? I mean, eating eggs without salt is awful. Or the day you go through the McDonald's drive-through and and the guy working the fryer forgets to put salt on, it's inedible. And then you discover what it actually tastes like instead of tasting the salt. Um, I, uh, I actually read a story I emailed to my wife um, about a king who was talking to his kids, and he said, well, how much, how much do you love me? And the oldest child says, well, I love you more than all the gold in the kingdom. And, and the, the middle child says, well, I love you more than, more than all the land and all the wealth in the kingdom. And the, the youngest child says, well, I love you more than I love salt. And he was kind of put off by that. And, oh, that's just weird. And the, the, the royal cook the next day just excluded salt from all the food and he discovered that salt like life without salt is miserable right um it's a whole other level of miserable um i'm sure folks here have walked into a restaurant and eaten a steak that the cook forgot to rub salt into before he cooked and it's just it's inedible it's awful um and and we're going to be looking at jesus's uh one of jesus's um little little sayings about salt and and i wanted to kind of dive into this with some context that that um Salt is, is, is a basic, right? I thought about all the wonderful things I put on food. I, I, I love bacon cheese fries. It's one of my top ten vices. I'm running out of vices. Um, but that's an extra. You know, you, you exclude the salt, and that's not good. You exclude the salt and bacon, and it's not that good, which is crazy, right? Nothing should make bacon less good. But, but excluding salt, man, it's, it's the death of it. Um, a little background here, like before we start talking about this salt thing, um, and the background's going to be a bigger chunk today, and so I'm going to apologize. Well, I'm not going to apologize up front. Just deal with it. Um, in context, 
This is Luke has kind of put together a series of teachings that all link together. Um, and they link together in a funny way, and, and we're going to start unpacking that, and then um, in the coming weeks it'll become even cooler. I'm actually really excited about the next series we're going to do, because we're going to talk about the prodigals, right? The lost sheep, the missing coin, and the prodigal son. And, and I'm actually super excited about it. I just finished reading a book on it, and saw how all this stuff connects together really well, and it's going to be a great, like, I'm excited to talk about it, so if nothing else. Um, but Jesus starts out, he's at a meal with a bunch of Pharisees, and um, he starts insulting them because that's part of what Jesus did when he was around Pharisees. He just, you know, would say things that insulted them, and they were all offended. And one of them, to kind of break the ice, said, well, you know, one day we'll all be in the feast, you know, at the end of, at the end of time, you know, and, and Jesus tells the story of the great banquet, you know, like, like the story of the, the wealthy man who invites the neighbors to a banquet and the banquets all the guests all say no the day of oh can't make it i got this i got that and and what it boils down to is all of these people instead of like showing up to the feast right they're they're concerned about this life and they're concerned about the world and they're concerned about their wealth and their image and their family and all of this other stuff and they don't want to go to the banquet as a result and the point in the context is all of these people are eating with Jesus, and they're so worried about their issues that they don't realize that he is the Son of God. And their own, like, junk blinds them to the fact that they're with Jesus, right? And these are the religious folks, right? And this is where the barb in this story is. I'm going to tell you up front, right? Like, the barb in this story is that Jesus is, like, knocking on the religious elite of the time, the people who should know better. Um, in the second half of this, he talks about... Uh, a, you know, well, no one would build a tower without figuring out if he can finish it. Because if he does, people would make fun of him, like when he couldn't finish it. Nobody would, like, like go out and fight an army without figuring out whether or not he could win. And, and last week we talked about that and how um, the idea behind this is if you're going to build a tower of your own strength or if you're going to try and fight God of your own strength, you're going to lose. Like, only with God's help can we accomplish anything. And, and in the context, again, he's criticizing these folks who believe, I am good enough on my own to reach God, right? I am holy enough, I'm smart enough, I'm this, I'm that, I am awesome enough that I will build my way to God on my own. And it's just not possible. And so, like, understand, Jesus is taking, like, like left and right swipes at these, at these religious elite, um, and so he's teaching the multitudes when he says this saying. And so he's talking about salvation at this point. And we've got to talk real quick before we get into it. He's about to talk about salt. And in the ancient world, salt was very different, right? They still used it to eat. We all got that, right? Um, they also used, well, flavoring. They also used it for medicine because medicine wasn't very advanced then. You would, like, give people salt as a form of medicine. You would also rub it on the skins of, in, like, like when a baby was born, you would put salt on its skin, like rub it in to keep it from dehydrating. Um, you would put it on your own skin to keep you from dehydrating because if you start sweating enough in the desert, you lose enough fluid, you're in trouble. And so they would do this like as a way of, to fight dehydration. They would add it to animal feed so the animals would eat better um, or eat things they wouldn't normally want to eat. They would use it for preservatives, right? Refrigeration was really low rent back then. And so like fishing was one of the major industries, and so they learned to pickle things in salt. And so, like, you preserved with salt. You would um, treat wounds with salt. I mentioned that. You would trade um, salt in contracts, like, as a symbol of the fact that the contract could never be broken. This is a big one. This is a, like, Jewish-specific one where, like, salt was a symbol 
of everlasting trade, right? Like unbreakable covenant with salt. Um, they would, uh, sometimes people would be paid in salt because it was worth so much money at the time that soldiers, like Roman soldiers, were often paid in salt instead of gold, and it was considered to be a good deal. Um, in ancient Israel, most of the salt comes from the Dead Sea, right, which is salty. In fact, it is so salty that, um, like, salt forms in mounds on the shores, and they would just chop it out, scrape off the top layer, grind it up, and eat it. And that's where salt came from. The problem with that is, is that it was not pure salt, right? And you would have this thing called salt leaching that would take place, where the salt in the salt would kind of find its way out of the salt. And you would end up with a big lump of gypsum and a couple other things, which is how a salt can lose its saltiness. Um, we're going to get to this uh, in a minute, but like in our context, has anybody ever opened up a can of table salt and found, oh my gosh, it's not salty anymore? Like it didn't happen anymore because we used pure salt. Um, for the Jews at the time, like salt lost its saltiness all the time. It was a real problem. Um, Jesus uses this metaphor a couple of times, and we're going to draw on those, but we're going to talk about, primarily we're going to talk about the context we're in. Everybody with me? Everybody still awake? Told you, long upload in the front end of this, because salt is just different then than it is now. It is. Big significance to it in the ancient world. Big difference in how it was the whole nine yards. So Jesus says, he gets finished talking about towers and armies, and then he says, salt is good. And we can all agree on that, right? Amen. Salt is good. Food without salt is awful. Um, rubbing salt in wound is unpleasant, but it can make it stop bleeding. There is good ends to salt. But... If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? We've all heard this before, right? This is actually a fairly controversial teaching. People made fun of Jesus for this. There was actually a rabbi uh, about a century later who, when asked by one of his students, well, how can salt lose its saltiness? And he says, hey, how can a donkey have a baby? Anybody know what the trick with that is? Donkeys can't have babies because they're all boys. Um, in the same way a donkey can't have a baby, salt can't lose its saltiness. Um, just taking a swipe at Jesus there is an interesting bit. I was like, well, that's kind of cool. I guess I'll share that. Um, salt could lose its saltiness then, and in a different setting, it didn't make as much sense. Um, and so there can be misunderstanding as it relates to this. The big question as we dive into this is, what the heck is Jesus talking about? What is this salt business, Right. Um, elsewhere he says y'all are the salt and light in the world, right? We're familiar with this. Um, in reality, my argument here is salt refers to Jesus in the life of his followers, right? Jesus in the life of his followers is what makes them taste good. It's what makes them heal the world around them. It's what makes them preserve and bring life and heal and do all of this other really cool stuff. It's actually what gives them worth. If you take that out, they've lost their saltiness and they suddenly become a lot less useful. Um, this is about Jesus infesting everything that you do. There was a point in time when... Um, when uh, my Jess and I were, were in very rough straits because I had really walked away from my faith and I was living a very outside of the Christian walk kind of life. I was, I was very much in rebellion against God. And I didn't fix my marriage by becoming romantic again. And I didn't fix my marriage by losing weight and getting handsome again, though it stuck well. Um, I, did not, 
I didn't fix my marriage by buying flowers. I didn't fix my marriage by reading poetry. I didn't fix my marriage by having long conversations. I fixed my marriage by becoming like Jesus, by learning how to be holy again, learning how to love Jesus and learning how to imitate Jesus. I didn't just start going to church because I went to church the whole time, right? Because saltiness is not about being religious, right? Being a Christian is actually not about being religious, Um being a follower of Jesus is not about not saying certain bad words and it's not about not working on certain days of the week and making sure you wear the right clothes and making sure that you own the largest Bible that you probably never read um, and everything. Like All of this stuff is not what it means to be salty in this respect, right? Because Jesus is teaching to take a swipe at the Pharisees. And these are guys who wore religious clothes. They didn't stand near sinners, right? Like, And in fact, actually, if a Pharisee was walking down the road and he saw a tax collector on the same road with him, the Pharisee would spit on the ground and cross to the other side and walk down and then cross back because he would never come near a sinner. He was that holy. But that's not really particularly fantastic, is it? I Actually, those guys avoid me. I've never collected taxes in my life. Um, but these are people who had lost their saltiness. And Jesus is taking a swipe at the fact that folks who used to be his followers, um, who used to profess to follow God, fell out of love with God. And their relationship with God became about rote repetition and building a tower to heaven on their own energy, right? And there are folks who do that. I will be holy enough that God will have to accept me when I show up, right? I will do enough bake sales. I will, you know, bring enough, like, really good food to the potlucks. I will never talk to sinners. I will do these things. And and then I will be holy enough. Can't happen. Right? In the same way as you can't put salt back in salt once it's gone, you cannot build your way to heaven. You will not make the world taste good being religious. Like, you can't do it. It doesn't work. Um, And in fact, actually, for the most part, once we exclude Jesus from the conversation, most of the religious folks I know who, who exclude Jesus from the conversation, like, they become worse than tasteless. They become bitter. Isn't it true? You become judgmental because if I have to compare myself with someone else to prove my holiness, right? Because I ain't comparing myself with Jesus. That's no good because it will prove that I'm not holy. But if I have to find people to say, oh, you know what? I am definitely better than that guy, and this proves that I'm good. Um, i got a problem, right? This actually is a hot sauce analogy. I, I've discovered that the best way to gauge how hot something is is by comparing it to something else. So when somebody asks me, well, how hot is that hot sauce? My first answer is, it isn't. You should try it. And my second answer is, like, oh, it's about four times hotter than Tabasco sauce. Oh, it's not as hot as ghost pepper sauce. It's not, you know, like, by scale. Make sense? Um, Like, religious folks do this, though. Like, this is when we have to build our way to heaven. We compare. We say, hmm, I am wearing better clothes than John, so I got that holiness thing nailed down. I I am doing better. You know, I, I haven't... Y'all hear what I'm saying? Before I chase this too far and get myself in trouble. Um, and, and, and I think very highly of John. Um, that's why I pick on him. I only pick on people I like. Um, at the end of the day, what Jesus is talking about is this idea that um, the usefulness of a person, their strength, their power, makes what makes them palatable is Christ in them. It's what takes your sins away. It's what purifies you. It's what makes it so when you come into contact with people, they encounter God directly. 
and not just another person pretending to be something they're not. Um, and this is a big deal. This is actually a question we should ask ourselves every day. Am I still salty? Do I still taste good to the people around me? If you're really brave, you'll ask the people closest to you, right? How am I doing with this? Do I look like Jesus? Where am I failing? Um, If you won't ask that because you know the answer, like, take it seriously, right? It is of no use either to the soil or for the manure pile. Um, in the ancient world, there was a there was a great like series of battles that took place where um, an army from North Africa, led by a fellow named Hannibal, not the guy from the A team, but an ancient general. Um, I'm not sure who's named after who, um, but Hannibal led an army through the Alps and into into Italy, and he beat the tar out of the Romans. Not once, not twice, but every time he encountered them, and he almost captured Rome. He was almost the first ancient army, ancient general, to capture Rome himself. And eventually, the only way the Romans could beat him was to go back and attack his capital, and he had to retreat to go protect his capital. Um, And when they captured his capital, they burned it to the ground, and they salted the fields. Literally, they shipped in tons and tons of salt and got out plows and plowed salt into the soil everywhere. The farmers in the room, what happens if you do that? It's over, right? You don't grow nothing. I think that's what's gone wrong with my garden. Um, So you couldn't grind the salt up and spread it in your field. Like, oh, let's throw it away in the field because you might screw up your planting, right? Like salt was worse than useless once it lost its saltiness. It became a liability. You couldn't throw it in the trash because sometimes you would use your trash to fertilize your fields, right? Which is what the manure pile is for. I'm sorry, guys, if you're, you know, those of y'all who don't know, like, Fertilizer used to be manure. Um, (laughs) But you couldn't put it in. You can't even throw it there. You have to get rid of it. Matthew actually says it's no good for anything but to be trod underfoot. And that's a reference to the fact that, like, um, people who would hike through the mountains, like, because Israel's all mountains down the middle, and the roads would become very slippery, these tiny little paths, if it would rain, which didn't happen often, um, they would become slick, and you could slide off the mountain if you weren't careful. And so they would take this salt that was no good, and they would spread it all over the ground. And as you were walking, it would grip to your feet so you wouldn't slide off the mountain. And that is a good use. But if you apply that to Christians who've lost their saltiness... That means the only thing your life is useful for anymore is as an example to other people so they don't fall down, right? I actually had a great demotivational poster that I was hoping would make it into the slides. I emailed it to my wife, but she didn't see the email. So um, it's my fault because I didn't text her. Um, But but it's one of those demotivational posters that says, hey, sometimes your life is useful only as an example to others as to what not to do, right? And losing Jesus can turn you into that guy where you point to him. And I talk to a lot of believers who will say this. Yeah, I used to go to this church and people were so nasty to each other, so I stopped going to church. I used to follow these people, like used to be really good friends with this guy and he helped me grow in my faith. But you know what? As it turns out he was like cheating on his wife and it wrecked me. Or I used to be so close with this guy and then I found out he was betraying me behind my back. Or, you know, and like losing your saltiness or like falling away from Christ turns you into something that, as Jesus says in Matthew, like your only purpose is to keep other people from falling down. So other people can look and say, oh, I don't want to be that guy, which is actually why I talk about my own sin all the time, because I want you to know you can fall and Jesus can still pick you up, right? Like, like 
live your life, that you're an example to other people as to what to do, how to be like Jesus. Paul says that repeatedly. He says, hey, you know what? Imitate me in the same way I imitate Christ. He's not saying imitate me. He's saying imitate Jesus. It is thrown away. Oh, hey, you got my other text. (laughs) That'll make it easier. Um, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's he saying there? Um, He's actually, this is... uh, this is a phrase that we see, like whenever he's saying, basically, that the Holy Spirit is in you, and that makes it possible for you to hear what I'm saying, right? He's saying, hear what I'm saying, pay attention if you can understand me, right? If you are equipped to understand. And so he's saying, listen, take your life seriously. Understand you following me, you belonging to me is what gives you value. It's what makes you good if you lose it. If you try to do it on your own, try to build the tower on your own, try to fight God on your own, you are ruined. Don't screw it up. Pay attention. If you understand what I'm saying. Now, the Pharisees at the time, they didn't understand. They're listening and they can't hear it because they're so busy saying, am I good enough? Well, I'm definitely better than that guy. I'm better than that guy. I'm better than that guy. But they couldn't hear. Or the people who are saying, you know what? I am so focused on my family that God is in the, in the back seat or God becomes a tool for making my family better or God becomes like this obligation that I have to meet on the way. I mean, this is about relationship and loving Jesus. Um, and it becomes a, a weight around our neck if we're not careful. Um, I was looking for other examples of good teaching that sort of encapsulated this. And I ended up in Hebrews 6 and I kind of went back and forth as to whether or not I wanted to talk about this because it's one of those like most difficult passages in the New Testament kind of thing. But we're going to do our best with it. Um, In the book of Hebrews, the writer, maybe Paul, maybe Luke, it's not real clear who's writing, as an exhortation, like as an encouragement, says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, then have fallen away to restore themselves to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a strong statement. You all with me? It is. And a lot of times people have read this and said, oh, this means that if you follow Jesus and you fall away, you're going to hell. It's actually not what it means. Um, There's a tense change that happens here, where in the first part he's talking in the past tense, and then he shifts to the present tense instead of continuing in the past tense. In Greek, this would draw attention to that statement. What he's saying is, if you have tasted the heavenly gift, filled yourself with the Spirit, you know him, you walk with him, and then you walk away and you crucify him over and over again in your life while you're in the process of crucifying him, while you're in the process of betraying Christ and disobeying and in rebellion, you cannot restore yourself. Why? Well, you can't fight Jesus and be restored at the same time, right? You can't be his enemy and be his servant at the same time. You can't rebel and belong at the same time. This is talking about like, hey, there are folks out there who will crucify Christ again. And while they're crucifying Christ, they they can't be recovered because they're getting rid of the only way to repent, the only way to be made right. He is the path. Um, Now, I'm drawn on this because of the second half of this, which fits super well with this salt thing. And it seemed like a good farmer analogy. 
For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those um, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. How many of y'all get this? Rain falls on your land, you get wheat, right? Or chickpeas or safflowers. I'm sure there's a use for those. Um, like that is, that is good. It is a blessing to you. Um, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And it's, its end is to be burned. I, uh, I drove uh, Swather for Larry last year. And I remember I was right on the road, and he's like, we're going to swath this field, and then we're going to burn it because it's all cheat grass. Is it sheet or cheat? Cheat. It's all cheat grass. And we, we don't want any of that mixing with the feed. We don't want it to grow again. We are setting it all on fire. And so you cut it, and we're burning it, right? And it seemed like a really weird use of my t- Well, actually, it seemed like a great use of my time because I love swathing, um, which is weird, I get. But, um, but, but how many of y'all can relate to this? You know, you got a field growing and it's half wild oats. And you think, well, there's that. What, do I, you know, what is there to do with it then? It becomes useless. Um, the believer who walks in Christ, who hears the word, who studies the word, who is raised in it, who knows Jesus, and then starts producing nothing but thorns, like they become like this saltless stuff. They become a field full of thorns. And the only use for it then is to burn it so it doesn't spread. Um, some of us are lucky and we get burned so it doesn't spread like in our lives. In my life, I was in rebellion against God and God kicked my butt and brought me back, right? Um, there are those of us who are lucky enough to, to get flat on our face and like wrecked so that God can fix us, right? Ultimately, like there are those of us who will face God alone and that is an awful thing. His army's bigger than yours, right? You ain't going to win. Um, to lose your saltiness, to stand before God, is to be a field full of thorns. Um, after it's planted and it's watered and everything else, and you get nothing but worthless. Um, how do we avoid this? What do we do with this? Um, i got a couple of ideas, a couple of thoughts I want to share. Um, in 252, year 252, Carthage, which is a city in North Africa, Carthage um, had a plague that hit it, Right? This is in the era, era of the early church. And a crazy thing happened as like in the course of about a week, half the population died or got sick. And there were like the pagan temples became abandoned. And people literally threw their dead in the streets and left. And half the city that wasn't sick, like most of them, moved away. And the only people that remained, the bishop at the time in Carthage, gathered up the church and said, we are not leaving. Our job is to take care of the sick here. And the church stayed and tended to the sick and buried the dead and took care of the people who remained, right? A lot of them died. A lot of them got sick and they passed away. But in the end, it changed Carthage. Once the plague had passed and people came back, they looked and they said, man, you people are something else. You people are different, right? You retain your saltiness by being something that is like Jesus, something that tends to the sick and the poor and the needy and the hurting and the miserable and the lost and all of these folks loves them and cares for them, even if it means the death of you. In our culture, that doesn't happen often, but it might mean the death of your reputation. How many of y'all know somebody who needs Jesus real bad and needs a handful of friends, but nobody goes near them because they're like a stink in the room? Really? No one? Those are folks that need Jesus. 
The people that the church should be reaching out to are people that are abandoned, are rejected, are lost, are wicked. We should be loving them beyond words, right? Not standing back and judging them. Not standing back and pouring God's wrath on them. Not making them feel like like they're worthless when they approach us. I read, uh, there's a really good book. I could not recommend it more highly. It's by Philip Yancey. It's uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. And in the beginning of this book, he talks about talking to a prostitute who was a drug addict and had done a number of really awful things like the, I'm not going to get into. But he asks her, he says, well, have you ever considered going to a church to look for help? And she looked at him and said, I feel bad enough already. Why would I go around church people that are just going to, you know, judge me and kick me out? Um, That's the opposite of being salt in the world, right? That's the opposite of being the thing that tastes good in the world. I started going to church because the church people I encountered treated me better than anyone else I had ever met. And I just wanted that. I was like, I don't know what it is, but I want it, right? Um, There's another thing that salt does. Anybody ever eat popcorn in a movie with too much salt on it? What's it do to you? makes you really thirsty. And that's actually what the church should be doing. You want to measure your life according to what Christ is? If you are imitating Christ to the point that your neighbors and the people you encounter look at you and say, I don't know what it is about you, but I want it. I am thirsty for what you got. You're doing it right. Everybody got it? Um, Because actually what Jesus says there is he talks about the taste of it. If it loses the taste of salt, um, then it's useless. If you cease to make people thirsty for Jesus... There's a problem. I, uh, one of the things I try really hard to do as a husband and as a pastor and as a neighbor and as, a, as an everything is to make people want Jesus. I love my wife not because I'm, you know, Romeo and the best husband ever, but because I want my wife to want Jesus, like because I'm here. Everybody with me? Um, I know folks who grew up in homes where they had religious parents that made them want Everything except Jesus. So if you are Jesus, I'm okay, right? Was it Gandhi that said, man, I love Jesus, but I do not like his people. Um, We need to be people that make the world thirsty. We need to be people that make the world desire to know Christ. And that means being in the world. Um, I was reading about uh, the monastic movement in the early church, these guys who were super holy, and they would go out and they would live in the wilderness away from, away from town so that the town wouldn't corrupt them. And there are folks that do this, right? Well, we don't watch TV in our house. Uh, we don't do this. We don't go around these people. We avoid this crowd because we don't want to be corrupted. In reality, the church should be going out, right? should be going out because salt is no good in the shaker. Salt is no good in the pantry. Salt is good on food. Um, We have to maintain our saltiness. How do we maintain our saltiness? We spend time with Jesus, right? We talk to him. We pray to him. We read his word. We learn about him. We walk with him. And you know what else? We do stuff, right? Because you know what? Honestly, if you read it and you do nothing with it, what good is it? Like, what good is it to know all about Jesus and not to bless the folks around you? And most of us, you guys are awesome this way. And I'm going to tell you, I realized something yesterday. I was praying about this sermon, and I realized the best thing most of us have is our family. Isn't it true? How many of y'all, like, just, you know, you've got great kids, and you've got to, you know, sitting around your dinner table is a great place to be. 
We live in a culture that's starving for folks to just be family with them. Invite folks into your family. That was actually the early church, how they met. They met around people's dinner tables. You want to show people Jesus, sit down and eat with them. In fact, actually, the, I, I heard about a fella. I've heard about him about ten times. Uh, would be Kay Ireland's husband. I've heard nothing but positive stuff about that guy. And every person I ever talked to said, if you knew him, at some point he was going to sit you down for lunch and he was going to tell you about Jesus, right? This is who we're called to be. People who, like, share our wealth. And our wealth, honestly, it's the love in our homes. That's what we got that nobody, well, not nobody, but, like, is starving for the world. Like, the world is starving for that. We have that to share. Uh, But we have to go out and do it. Keep the salt in the shaker and it's useless. Um, You are what makes life taste good, right? We're not called to judge the world. We're called to call them to Christ. We're actually called to, well, anyway, we get into that. Um, A last thing that we can do, and I'm going to call my guys forward for communion. Um, A last thing that we can do, and this is big, like it is a huge deal. It's something that Jesus told us to do on the night he was betrayed, on the, on the night that Jesus was arrested, on the night that he was tried illegally, on the night that he was whipped and mocked and spit on and abused. On that night, um, Jesus took his, took his bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Um, take this and eat it. Um, do it in remembrance of me. Whenever you get together, you eat this meal and you remember, I am yours. I belong inside you. And we need to do this and we need to do it not in a way that's the religious way. I'm not knocking on religion because Christianity is a religion. We are religious people, right? But like in a way that reminds us that Jesus was broken for us, right? A way that reminds us that we're called to be salt in this world. And so as you take the bread this morning,